Hello and welcome back to The Latecomers. I am Amity. I am Lemuel. And we have just watched episode three of Twin Peaks. That episode is titled Zen or the Skill to Catch a Killer. And I think you're going to have a lesson for me on what that's all about. Maybe. Okay. I guess let's just go right into it. This originally aired on Thursday, April 19th, 1990. Let me give you some details about that date in history. Why are you smiling? Because oh. <laughs> that's what I do. It makes my voice sound nicer. The top 10 songs in the USA include number one is Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You, a Prince joint. And that one I remember. Yes, good. Striking Bald Woman. Also on this list is number four, Callaway's I Want to Be Rich. That'd be from the aforementioned Julia Roberts, quote unquote, rom-com, Hooker with a Heart of Gold movie, or I want to call it Runaway Bride. That's not the name of it. It was another Hooker with a Heart of Gold movie. <laughs> she was not. Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman is what I intended to say. Um, also, fun fact about April 19th, it was Easter Sunday on in 1908, 1981, 1987, and 1992. In the Gregorian calendar, Easter Sunday falls on the 19th of April more often than on any other day. Not I in 1990, was completely unaware of that. In 1990, however, it was a Thursday, and therefore not Easter Sunday. Uh, let me have you read us the Wikipedia synopsis of this episode, please. Ben welcomes his returning brother, Jerry, with some bad news, and the two decide that a trip to One-Eyed Jacks is needed. Cynical FBI agent Albert Rosenfeld arrives in town. Josie discovers that Catherine is double-crossing her. That night, Cooper has a strange dream that elevates the murder investigation to a whole new level. And this episode, uh, written by Mark Frost and David Lynch, and returned to direct, David Lynch did this one. Which, yeah, that seems right. <laughs> um, we open on the horn and I may rename them the Horny Family Dining in Silence. Big, or sort of an ornate room, big table, father at the head, mother at the foot. I believe this is the first time I remember seeing Mrs. Horn. Audrey is there, and a person in a war bonnet is there, which we then go on to realize that that is her 27-year-old brother, Johnny. He is gesturing... A little bit, but not making too much noise. Nobody is talking. It's literally just silverware clanking on plates for like a minute, like a solid minute, before Uncle Jerry bursts through the door and is very gross. <laughs> he is um, a small, vile man. Yes, that's right. I Yeah, mm-hmm, that. He uh, comes in. He has... What I presume to be the bellboys of the hotel, uh, carrying all of his stuff. He insists that they go through his bags right then because there's a sandwich that he wants. And he pulls out four... Phallic sandwiches. Well, a loaf of bread is a phallic symbol. Um, and these are brie and butter sandwiches on baguettes. 
We go, go ahead and call those the triple Bs. I think I just turned into Guy Fieri. Oh, my God. My bad. And I'll change back before it becomes permanent and sticks. They, the brothers, uh, he and his brother both start eating them with... Uh, it could only be described as Neanderthal relish. That seems right. I Relish was where I was at. Neanderthal I hadn't got to. That sounds right. Um, and then they take leave of the family, who has sat there basically making no noise or recognition. We come in and... and the mother yeah. becomes sort of groany, though, after a period of time. Oh, yes, she does. And, and uh, Uncle Jerry awkwardly hugs Audrey and refers to himself as her Uncle Jerry. And I have become of the firm belief that he is that uncle. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a big pile of yuck. And so they go outside and Jerry is informed two things. One, Leland Palmer's daughter was murdered and two, the Norwegians have left town. And Jerry says, did they sign? Is informed that they did not sign, that the business deal has gone bad uh, while he was in Paris. Um, And then he circles back, did you say Leland Palmer's daughter died? And then he says he's depressed, and his brother says, that's okay, we'll go to One-Eyed Jack's. There's a new girl there that smells of the perfume counter, and you have a 50-50 chance of getting to her first. So, ew. It's a charming family. It's so charming. A fun juxtaposition right over to Donna's house, the wholesomest of wholesomes, And we find out that this is the same night that we just left. It's Saturday evening, and the family is retiring. And by family, I mean the parents are retiring to leave James and Donna on the couch. And without without really chastising them into chastity, the dad does say, you're going to church with us tomorrow, right? 9 a.m. church tomorrow? (laughs) 9? To which her response could have been, yes, I have lots to confess. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yes, but she doesn't say that. And they are left on the couch uh, alone. And Opposite then there side is, of the couch. Well, that's where they start. Yes. But then they get closer. And then there's kiss facing. And canoodling. Canoodle, yes, much canoodling. And then she's asking him if they're going to be together as they're making out. And I'm like, do you mean like biblically right now or generally? Because it seems like the answer is yes. And also, apparently, James has loved Donna forever. And then we get a a cut back to the lake. We see a boat on the lake, um, the missing lake. And the brothers, now the horny brothers, are headed out to One-Eyed Jacks. Uh, They arrive at a dock uh, where a woman is dressed like she's going as a hooker for Halloween. And we find out that... And her costume is far too small for her. Is it? Yes. Well, she's busting out, but she's supposed to be, I think. Well, this scene is in 3D. Yes. And it's a breakaway costume. Uh, so we find out One-Eyed Jacks is a brothel. A whorehouse, if you will. <laughs> whorehouse. Whore. Um, but it's a brothel as though some people saw a whorehouse in a movie and we're like this is what a whorehouse Speaking is. Speaking on behalf of people um, you know favoring this kind of thing <laughs> I think that is a very uh, for one thing I don't think every any brothel ever looked like this 
They're all the um, workers are all in matching costumes. They are dressed as though the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland has become a madam. Right. Red, and white, black, small. All of this was purchased at Fredericks of Hollywood. A room with None a, of this was purchased at Victoria's Secret. A bar and at one end, and then what can only be described as vaginal curtains on the other. Were they? I didn't notice that. Big, puffy red curtains. Oh, that, good. Or, or pink, rather. That sort of open and you follow them into these pink-lined rooms. So Very attractive. Yes, it's um, like being born. And Jerry orders two drinks in a very condescending way from the female bartender who also is dressed as though she is on the menu. It's a theme. And the uh, women come out to present themselves, and the new one comes out that Jerry has heard so much about. The brothers flip a coin, and Jerry loses. And his brother goes in the back with this young woman who is, I mean, she looks young. Um, You forgot the attempt to seduce the madam by quoting Shakespeare. I don't know that that was an attempt to seduce. Or just, it, it went on forever then. It did. It was... He, he quoted a lot of Shakespeare at her. I mean, usually one or two lines will do, but no, this went on and no, on. No, it on. was, yeah, it was it a was... goodly chunk of the play, as though he were per- poem, auditioning. Rather. It was from a play, I think. Was it one, of, it was one of the sonnets? Oh. Hmm. I don't do much of Shakespeare's poetry. Well, enough oh, to think that this was a sonnet. <laughs> but, um, and then we flip back to James and Donna. They, that was when they were on the couch and they were saying... This is going to... I don't think what we're doing is wrong because I've always loved you. <gasps> I knew it. Okay. And then they kiss and kiss and kiss. And then we flip back to a clock. It's midnight. And we are at the hotel. And it's Cooper uh, returning to his hotel room. He's finished whittling his whistle because it works. His whistle. Okay. Whittling and his whistle. Whittling his whistle. Yes. Um, and he uh, gets a phone call, answers it, and it's from Hawk. Third cop is Hawk. Hawk. Of course it is. And he is likely a Native American man. Um, With beautiful hair. And There's lots of beautiful hair on the show. Well, yes, and then apparently some hair that you have some serious problems with. Well, and then the one, one stands out. <laughs> um, and Hawk is uh, recounting uh, what he learned at the hospital with Ronat's parents um, and recounts that there was a one-armed man, to wit, Cooper says, a one-armed man? <laughs> like... <laughs> that automatically makes him a suspect. Yes, absolutely. And he said, did you try and talk to him? And Hawk says, no. He evaded me. Cooper says, keep uh, someone on her full time, and we will meet again tomorrow. And then we flip out to night. Mike and Bobby in their car. In the woods somewhere, it turns out. There's not a specific place. Mike's got a switchblade. They go up to a tree, uh, dig around, find the football that Leo had been mutilating in the previous episode. And apparently there are drugs in the football, but not enough drugs. And then Leo appears behind them and says, where's my money? Cash on delivery. Um, And there's a bit of a scuffle. Leo, because he is the brightest bulb, takes his flashlight, points it at his feet, points it at the boys and says, Leo needs a new pair of shoes. (laughs) 
<laughs> you needed a visual cue for that. Uh, it was rough. And they intimate that Laura was wild and that she had his money and they will be able to get his money back once everything sort of dies down. Leo also goes into his belief that Shelly is stepping out on him and Bobby nervously asks if he knows who that might be with. Since, oh, Leo's also pointing a gun at them the entire time. And Leo says, I'll figure, or I'll work it out, which to me says he does not know who it is or he'd just shoot Bobby right now. Um, And then tells them to go out for a pass and makes them run away. And that's the end of that scene. That's, yeah, that is a weird ending to that scene. We flip over to Ed's. I believe now we're in Sunday morning. Um, Saturday night has ended. This episode did pick up right where the last one ended. And Ed is covered in grease. And he's walking through his house and steps on a weird contraption that's just out in the middle of his floor. And Nadine, who is um, dressed like... Uh, background actor in Jane Fonda aerobic video is and is on a rowing machine in front of the television uh, freaks out at him and says that he disgusts her he makes her sick and he's ruined her runners her silent runners that is supposed to make them rich and then he leaves to ostensibly wash off because he is covered in grease I've never seen so much grease, well, on grease a person. we find out later there's no reason for it, given at that point. It just looks like he's terrible at his job. And Nadine, with her, yeah, crazy bionic strength, breaks, the like, bends the rower arms behind her, just hulks out on this machine and breaks the rower arm. And then we flip back to the woods, and this scene is weird. And I didn't write much about it, and I'm hoping that you can help me understand what's happening. Lucy has put out a spread of donuts because that is what Lucy does. And then the entire police force is there. We've got Truman, we've got Andy, and we've got Hawk, and we've got Cooper, and they're measuring distance, 60 feet. feet. Mm -hmm. And they put a glass out. There's a chalkboard. And then Cooper says that he had a dream Well, he brings out a map of Tibet. He gives us a baby history lesson about the Dalai Lama. He says that he has had a dream and now knows how to solve murder with his mind. Subconscious mind. With his subconscious mind. So he's, they're going to read every quote J name and give a little blurb on how that person interacts with Laura, like what their relationship is. And he's going to chuck a rock at the after every name is read. And then if, the, if he hits the bottle, then a check goes next to the name. And so they do that for a number of people. James, mm-hmm. they do it for, I'm trying to think, Norma Jennings is one of them. Like, every character in this show has a J associated with them almost. And nobody, there's a bunch of, he misses, he misses, he misses. He clicks on... Who was the first one where it hit but didn't break? Uh, I believe it was um, Joan Chen's character. That's right. And then it was One-Eyed Jacks where he knocked the bottle down but didn't break. No, it wasn't because they didn't do One-Eyed Jacks because One-Eyed Jacks was on. Oh, he had gotten a note slipped under his door at the hotel and the note read Jack with one eye. Mm -hmm. 
and then they say, oh, well, that's a brothel on the other side of the border, on the Canadian border. So mm. I guess they're right at the top of Washington, and that's what the lake is, mm-hmm. half Canada, half okay. U.S. Um, but then they're like, a Lucy goes on, and she's like, that's not a person. That's a place. Should I erase it? Because it's a place and not a person. <laughs> yeah, it shatters on Leo, mm-hmm. which I totally knew it was going to do. no. It didn't hit on Josie. It might have hit on Shelly. I thought it was Josie. My mistake. Mm, hold on. I'm going to look this up. Okay. 60 feet 6 inches away is how far the bottles mm. are. Each time he hits the stone, he considers a previous name read out to be of interest to the case. The Jacoby. is It hits oh, on Jacoby right. and the bottle falls down, but it does not break. And he okay. makes a note of that. And at Johnson, Leo Johnson, and it shatters. Uh, in between the scene in the woods where they're measuring the distance Mm -hmm. and the scene in the woods where they're actually doing the thing. Mm -hmm. There's a brief scene of Bobby going by Shelly's house and seeing her bruises from the sock weapon. The sock cop. Huh? The sock cop. There's a name for that. Like, there's a name for when you do that, Mm -hmm. but I can't think of what it is. But that scene is like 90 seconds, maybe less. There's another even briefer scene at the diner where Ed just comes in, asks for a cup of coffee, but what he really wants is a cup of Norma. Um, And they flirt openly in public. She's touching his face. He's married. And then he says, I'm in the doghouse again because I broke Nadine's weird thing. Um, This is before we realized that that was a good idea. Yes. Yes, mm. yeah, we're, yes. Um, and then they're out in the woods, and once again, it's the doctor, Dr. Jacoby, and Leo that are the prime, going to be the prime suspects on based on this very scientific uh, rock-throwing well, it's situation. It's kind of science, yes. No, so what is this? Well, Because um, you said when they were measuring, oh, they really Well, I got that idea not from necessarily from the measurements themselves, but um, it came from reading Eugene Herringill. Is a book Zen and the Art of Archery. Um, one of the principles. Is that the very first of the like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, mm-hmm. which is the sort of famous sixties? The idea, yeah, the idea is that he learned archery in Japan, and um, one of the principles is when to load the the bow and when to let it loose, knowing the perfect moment to let it loose, and and uh, the idea that intrinsically you know when that right moment is. But they believe, or one of the principles of Zen is that you know what you need to know already. Okay. okay is that you're born enlightened. Okay, and so when he, when the name and information comes into him... Right, what he's going to do will... is subconscious, his subconscious mind already knows, has observed enough to know what's going on. And so he needs to find a way of getting past his conscious mind, which is acting as a filter, to get to that information in the back of his head that knows what the right thing is. So he does this by doing a physical exercise. Right. Which is the way that martial arts is practiced in Zen. You're trying to remove the layers of what's been added to it to take away and get to the core of, of, uh, of understanding or enlightenment. So you're trying to achieve this state, in this case, by doing something, some sort of physical exertion, and through it he's going to be able to reach a point where he, uh, his body and his mind are acting in unison, mm-hmm. and they're able to do something like hit the bottle. It's a difficult exercise because it's far away. Right. But at the same time, and this is a very clumsy um, description of what the principle is and what he was doing. But it was as if he knows subconsciously, he's observed enough to see what's actually going on. And it's going to be revealed to him through this practice because his body, the conscious or the subconscious body will make that much more effort to actually hit the jar and break it or the bottle. 
uh, when he comes to the one that he has the feeling intrinsically that's right. It's very, yeah, now that I'm saying it out of my mouth, it sounds very strange. Well, no, but that's clearly what they were doing, and that right. it was a reference that I didn't understand. So so then we go back to the diner, and it's Sunday morning after church, because Donna and her family are there, and Audrey comes in. Donna's parents say, oh, we saw Audrey at church. Mm-hmm. Um, and Donna goes over and, and talks to Audrey, um, and she says that she did go to church because of Laura, which was surprising to Donna because Donna's like, well, you didn't like her. And Audrey says, you know, I didn't like a lot of things about her, but she helped raise my brother. So for that, I kind of loved her. And then she has played the same song that she was dancing to in the previous episode. She's played on the jukebox and she gets up and she... It's very popular. Yes. And she's standing and sort of dancing in the middle of the diner. Um, oh, after saying that, like, sort of flirting with her cup of coffee and saying that Agent Cooper loves coffee, um, <laughs> and they giggle together, and I'm just like, inappropriate, he's like a full-grown person, and you're gonna be a full-grown person soon, but aren't yet. Uh, I think she's socially developed. Fair. And I think her uncle had something to do with it. Gross. And so she, that scene ends on her sort of swaying and dancing to herself in the middle of the diner on a Sunday morning. There's an interesting observation by her father, too. Oh, yeah. The minute he sees her, he suddenly remembers he has to get 60-watt bulbs. Yeah, what is... Which is implying dim bulb. (laughs) <laughs> essentially a 60-watt so, bulb. really? I think he doesn't have the highest opinion of her. Well, she is not helping herself right. in that regard, I think. Um, but I thought that was a very funny, very deliberate reference to what he thought of her. Yeah, I thought it was like that she was a brightness. Mm-hmm. But 60 watts is not very 60 strong. isn't. You're right. You might be right about that. I mean, that's like an easy bake oven. Um, and then we flip back to the station, and um, Hawk has found uh, like a bloody towel or a rag. Mm half a mile down the trail from the crime scene. Uh, And then Albert shows up, the man that had been called in the prior episode. And it's Miguel Ferrer, the late, great Miguel Ferrer. Is it Ferrer? Ferrer. I always pronounced it Ferrer. I'm wrong. So Miguel Ferrer, and he is a big jerk. He basically calls everybody rubes and dumb. I believe the word podunk might be thrown around. (laughs) Truman pulls him aside and he's like, I know, I understand that you are very good at what you do, uh, which is great because normally if you come in talking all this smack and then he (laughs) threatens him, but... uh, and so I think he and uh, or Albert, he and Albert will come to some sort of understanding where maybe they're going to tone it down a little bit. And uh, he goes off, uh, is going to be escorted to the morgue. And we get a double thumbs up from Coop. <laughs> double thumbs up to Truman. And then we flip over and we're at Ned's, uh, or I'm sorry, Ed's, Ed's house. And Ed has come home and... Nadine opens the door and it's a long shot of her just straight full running at him. And I'm just like, what is she going to do? And she hugs him because apparently his grease got on her balls. And now she has the silentest drape runners of all time. And she says they're going to be so rich. I don't know. Maybe QVC money. I'm curious. 
how delusional she is or how or how this started or how he wound up marrying somebody who's this far gone. Yeah. I'm there's a story there too, but yeah. I, I don't know what it is. And then we flip over to Pete and Catherine's and it's uh the evening. They're getting mm. Catherine is getting ready for bed. Pete is cleaning his boots on the bed. And then you find out Pete's cleaning his boots on Catherine's bed because this is not Kath or Pete's room. They sleep in separate rooms. I would too if I were him. Yeah, then she's she's shrill and uh, clearly hates him, and she, he doesn't like her either. Um, at, but at this point, Josie comes over and Pete sneaks her a key and says the ledger's inside. And so Catherine kicks Pete out. Says, get your boots off my bed and get out and go to your room. She just yells, go to your room. And it was really shades of Carrie. Like she <laughs> screams it at him. Like go she, to your closet. It was right. rough. And then we see Josie opening a safe that's behind a bookcase, which is pretty mm. cool, and finds two ledgers. So we don't know what's going to go there, but it's probably not a great sign that there are two sets of books. No, there was a reference to that earlier in the episode. Right. Um, that there was uh, two sets of books. There was a... Uh, no, no, last episode, I think it was. She says that she's doing some creative math, but right. I didn't know there was a whole separate set of... Yeah, that's... And then we go back to the Palmer house. Leland is playing a record, swing record, mm-hmm. uh, Pennsylvania 6-5000, which I always think is Transylvania. I saw that movie when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And you've never gotten over it. Um, how do you get over Ed Begley Jr.? You don't. <laughs> you don't. Also, I believe Goldblum is in that. He holds a photo of Laura and is spinning and yelling and spinning and yelling and listening to this song. And then Mrs. Palmer comes down and she's like, stop, you need to stop. And she just starts yelling, what is going on in this house? Which I've decided is the alternate title for this television show. What is going on in this house? And it's whatever house you happen to be at. That's a fair question. Um, and then he breaks the photo and is bleeding on Laura's face. That, yeah. <laughs> mm. It's a little uncomfortable. A and, little. And then we're back at the hotel and Cooper is in bed. And we get into his dream. And then we know, hey... David Lynch directs this, huh? Because this is weird. There's uh, the one-armed man who introduces himself as Mike. And there's another man named Bob who is the gentleman that was crouching in Mrs. Palmer's, like, day terror the day before, um, who says that he'll kill again. And I think it's interesting that it's Mike and Bob, and meanwhile we've got these two hooligans running around, mm. Mike and Bobby. Right. Bob says he's going to catch you with my death bag. And then there is a little person in a red suit who sounds like he's talking backwards, and it's very creepy and weird. And there's a woman who the the... Um, man says is his cousin, right. but looks just like Laura Palmer. And then he's like, no, that is Laura Palmer. Isn't it Laura Palmer? And then she gets up and whispers something in Cooper's ear. And then he wakes up and then he calls Harry and says, we need to meet in the morning, which is a weird thing because I'm pretty sure they were already going to do that. It's Monday morning. Right. And 
I know who killed Laura. And then he says, no, we could, it can wait. Like, they don't need to meet right then. It can wait. Um, and then that's the end of the episode. And the, the dream gets its own credit sequence, which is pretty intense. That apparently the little man, the little person, is called the man from another place. That's what Wikipedia okay. says. So that's his character title. And, but that brings us to the end. And it was, it felt like a super short episode. And I think that's because there were lots of scenes where there wasn't a lot. There wasn't a proliferation of short scenes. There were longer scenes that carried a lot of information or at least, you know, built on the the story so far. But also there were some weird little short scenes like that little scene of, of Ed going into the diner ostensibly just to flirt openly with his mistress for, you know, 40 seconds or whatever. And overall, you did get a fair amount of information. I still think it's Leo. Who are you? Where are you at? Um, I, I don't know at this point because it's gotten so weird. Yeah. I know that it's possibly Bob. The... The creature that was uh, has not seen the face of God as opposed to Michael, who did, and therefore had to remove his arm. Oh, right. Um, so <laughs> I, See, I didn't follow that part in the dream sequence. That was all stuff that was said in the dream sequence, and I was like, what's happening? I, I didn't know what was going on there either, but that was the part that I came away with, and I'm going, uh, if it's um, if Laura's mother saw the same character, and yeah. now Cooper is seeing it, then we're making a jump from a reality-based, as much reality-based as it could be, because it's sort of a fantasy anyhow, this sort of timeless area or space, into something other. Right. You know, subconscious dreams and, and uh, practices, you know, very kind of um, subconscious practices, or Jungian practices for finding uh, the killer. It's making a jump now. So mm-hmm. I'm sure that Bob has something to do with it now, but I don't know who that is and who Bob's hands are in the world. Yeah. But I would suspect at this point, the other suspect that comes up is the father, who is just behaving so badly. Leland? Then again... The yeah, Laura's okay, father. Okay, Laura's father. It, but then again, the mother is. The mother a has. Too. It seems like the grief has shifted. Right. Like, like Leland was holding it together while his wife was falling apart, and now they're sort of switching places. And we've got to remember, like, we are still we're on episode three, and we're in the third day. Right. So uh, once again. And we've got to figure out, what's up with Dr. Jacoby? He wasn't in this episode at all, except his name. Right. um, And it being a a call to his subconscious, Mm -hmm. I guess we'll call it. Uh, But Leo's got to have something to do with it. Or, at the very least, he got her into something. Or put her in a position or a place. Well, so far we have no idea what he does that makes him so vile. Well, he Um. is... Abusive. Well, no, no, I don't mean that. I and mean, he is. What's the external? What, a why drug does he have dealer. Blood all over his shirt. That we don't know. Right. So we're right. going. We know that he's a drug dealer, but we don't know exactly what he's up to. Right. Only that whatever it is, he's a dyed in the wool monster. And there's a couple of things that I don't know if I should attribute it to just writing for melodrama or if I should try to approach it realistically. Like, how on earth did she get married to? Yeah, and then also, what is the backstory? And especially with no child. Right. Like, it feels like that relationship was was cemented because there was a pregnancy. Right. 
Like, why else would she well, marry also him? Also, the woman with the eye patch and her husband mm-hmm. also is really unequally met. It's so much so that everyone in the town sort of seems to agree that it's a good idea that he has a mistress and right. be happy. Because clearly this woman right. is batshit and he's a normal, nice dude, so he right. deserves a normal, nice lady. And what's very funny is that Everett McGill, the actor, is very tall. Mm-hmm. So in some circumstances, I remember uh, the first time I really saw him was actually in Dune. Oh, really? Enough. More yes. David Lynch He played... Um, uh, Kyle McLaughlin's right hand. And so he's been up until this part when I was watching him in films playing these uh, very kind of, he was a werewolf in uh, Cycle of the Werewolf, the film adaptation. And which actor is this? Everett Miguel, who is married to the eye patch lady. Okay, Ed. There's a Wes Craven film where he played a villain who locked his children inside of his house, the people under the stairs. Oh, okay. And he was a villain in a Steven Seagal movie. He has a big fist fight with Steven Seagal at the end. So he's always playing these very kind of big, intimidating, burly parts. I believe he's also a caveman in Quest for Fire, I think. Oh, interesting. And then he's playing this cuckolded husband. Or not cuckolded. Um, no. Henpecked uh, was the word I was looking for. I don't love that word. <laughs> um, because you've never owned chickens. It's a real thing in the real world. Well, that's fine, but it seems a little reductive. Uh Sexist, I think, is the term you were looking yeah, for. Yeah, about that, it is. <laughs> but um, but you just, uh, well, maybe abuse would be a better word because it goes beyond her just there, picking at him. She, she probably physically is in danger from her. It's possible. Given her freakish strength and her ability to bend metal and twist it in her bare hands. Yeah, that was weird. Um, <laughs> it just seems like she's filled with adrenal rage at yes. any given moment. So. That scene where she does come running at him, you're fearful for his life. This is I was. I was like, is there a knife in her hand? What's happening? Uh, size and physical strength. You might be concerned that something really bad is going to happen to him. But yeah, it's funny watching him in this context now where he's just kind of beat. You know? Yeah. And he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. And going home is a danger for him. And, and also... Again, it's very funny how the town and his mistress are all sympathetic. Tell me about what it would happen with your wife today. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's very funny. But you don't think Nadine is... I don't think so. There's too many other things involved now, including supernatural forces and... And um, apparently Nadine's the only person in the town that Laura wasn't working for. Right. Well, so that we know so far. That's true. Alrighty. So, do you have any current recommendations? Um, yes, we saw a play a few weeks ago. We did. Uh, by Daniel Handler, and it is called Imaginary Comforts or the Story of the Ghost of the Dead Rabbit. The Story of the Ghost of the Not at all an awkward title for a, a play, but we saw it at the Berkeley Rep. Yes. And, it's, uh, uh, it was a world premiere, so I right. don't know if people are going to be able to see it anytime soon. It is a preview soon. audience. I'm sure that it'll get around because it's very funny. It is. It's very funny that it's, um... It's for adults, not for kids. Yeah, he does write stuff for kids, but this is not that. You can watch the, the completed uh, works of Lemony Snicket if you want to watch kids stuff um, by Handler. But this is a very funny play. I don't want to get into it in too much detail, but it overlaps. It's very intelligent. It overlaps with itself. There are scenes that are explained from different angles. There are characters you don't like at the very beginning that become priceless treasures by the end. And other characters that you think you're going to like that, no, you don't like at all. Yeah. But it's a really very funny play, and the characters, at least the performance that we saw, um, they were great. They were very yeah. much on point, and some of the humor just went by too fast for the audience. I'm sure that's a timing issue, because we saw a preview um, yeah. of the play. So some of the timing will be worked out, but it's very uh, funny. It's very Jewish, <laughs> about a rabbi 
who... Well, a rabbi is a character. A rabbi who might... But it's really about her and her relationship to both her faith and how to interpret that in a way that's in any way remotely helpful to anybody, anybody around else. her. Yeah. Because she's a terrible rabbi. Oh, she gets better. But, yeah, but that's kind of the gist of the play, is her coming to some understanding of what people need a rabbi for or what value these stories have to people. And, and she's very, very funny in it. Um, and so, as is everybody, but her character is uh, is really very funny. Her character sort of stands you out. You just have a crush on her because she um, has pretty red hair and glasses. But she was just so helpless <laughs> and develops over time. Yeah. But, um, yeah, the play... There's some really interesting character development right, in that play. Right, there is. There's yeah. really interesting character development. There are scenes, again, where you don't think that your feelings for one character are going to go one way and they suddenly do. And you realize that somebody who you thought didn't have it on the ball was actually... You know, had it together. Have really yeah. had it together and pulled everyone through without knowing it. So it's actually a really good play. Um, and I highly recommend it. It's very funny. Imaginary Comforts or the Story of the Ghosts Ghost. of the Dead Rabbit. <laughs> right. Okay. And I am going to recommend Gerald's Game, uh-huh. um, the movie. The book's fine. The mm-hmm. book's great, actually. I read the book two years early. I read it. It was the only book that my mom told me I was not allowed to read until I reached a certain age. That age was 14. Mm-hmm. I read that book when I was 14, and I wished my mom had told me that I could not read it until I was 16. It is. It has intense uh, subject matter. Uh, the movie, I did... I thought it was unfilmable. A lot of the book takes place in an internal situation, which doesn't translate to film very well. But they did an excellent job. Um, what's her name? Carla Gugino. Carla Gugino. Carla Gugino. Ms. Carla Gugino is spectacular. And Bruce, Bruce Greenwood. Bruce Greenwood, right. Is her f- husband. Um, and it's basically the two of them. Sometimes multiple ones or twos of each of them. Sometimes a dog. And sometimes, and sometimes a, a dog. So there are a couple of other people in the film, but it's mostly those mm. two. And really, it's mostly her. And it's not too long. I think the runtime is like 140 or something like that. Mm. It's a Netflix original. It was released a few weeks ago. And if you like psychological thrillers, if you like... Watching a woman turn into a badass and get herself out of a jam. You're not put off by a little bit of graphic. There is some graphic material material in here. This is based on a Stephen King book, so that is a piece to take uh, into account. Mm -hmm. But this is more like Stand By Me and Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile than it is like It or The Shining. Well, maybe even The Shining. The Shining is Which also I liked, actually. Yeah. Less gore, more... It is horrible what is happening, but it is not bloody or... But there is a... You know, there's a scene. There's a couple of scenes um, where she's uh, having a therapeutic moment, I'll just put it that way, and remembering things that she thought she'd forgotten. Yeah, oh yes, there is... You need to be prepared that there's going to be... I mean, if we are attempting to sort of warn people that it could be triggered by... Yes. Uh, scenes of sexual abuse or violence. There's both of them. And there's both film. of those in there. But mm-hmm. overall... But it, yeah, it's not pointless. It's not gratuitous. It's no. actually explaining why a character would passively accept some of the things they do. And once they move past that, what they're going to do to survive. Right. And so it becomes, in its context, it's actually really important. It's not done to uh, shock or horrify. Right, right. Um, 
Yeah, and yeah, none of it does feel gratuitous yeah. uh, in the context enough, of the film. It's as tasteful as the subject matter can be treated. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that's a fair way right. to put it. It's, you know, it's not gratuitous, but it's also as presentable as something like this can be made. It is, and um, and it does a very good job with that. And Carla Gugino is, I think, she was cast for her looks a lot when she was younger, and her willingness to put herself out there. I mean, I don't know another actor who just wandered through most of their scenes in a film naked. And I remember Sin City, she's just wandering through her scenes in that film, Delivery Exposition, almost stark naked. Is it her? Or yeah, is her. are they using a body no, double? No, it's her. Oh, it's her? But um, and maybe she's doing this because it's like, I need you to all stop thinking of me as the mom in My Kids. <laughs> like, look. Oh, maybe. Um, but the thing is that she is, um, she's, to me, always been sort of underrated. She does a lot of action films, whether she's with The Rock or with... Uh, mm. Um, Jet Li or something, and um, and she does really well with that because she can hang with the boys. She's what is she in with Jet Li? Oh, the one. Oh, right. And that was a really fun movie for people who like action movies or martial arts movies. And she really, apparently, like most actresses who work with Jet Li, had a huge crush on him. Well, he's um, amazing. <laughs> he's amazing, but I think it's I have so a crush on him, and I've never met him. He looks helpless, but he's not. He's not. Know? He can kill you six ways before you even realize what's happening to you. But she uh, she did a film with him, and they're very sweet together. They're playing the couple mm-hmm. that exists in several alternate universes right. that needs to be together all the time. So that's a very sweet kind of action movie. But she does a lot of those ones because she can hang with it. But this is a film that shows that she has serious dramatic chops. She always yeah. did. Yeah. And maybe getting older when she stops being the Jessica Rabbit, which is the, what she used to call herself. She was cast to be Jessica Rabbit. Oh, in the no, park. that's sad. Um, that she'll be able to get a lot more of this and get recognized for the fact that she is a very, very skilled and talented actress. Yeah, she's wonderful to watch. Um, and you don't get tired of watching her for no. the extent of the, of the movie where you're basically just watching her. Right. Um, yeah, so that's very good. Cheryl's Game on Netflix. And that brings us to Elfine. And by Elfine, I mean the end. Something that belongs to a fish. Yes. So I will thank you so much for listening. Um, Please rate, review, um, subscribe to us on any of the podcasts getting platforms. That includes Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes. Um, Thank you to the Freak Fandango Orchestra for the theme song Late As Usual from the album Tales of a Dead Fish. You can find us on Twitter at LatecomersPod. You can find me at Amity Armstrong. Hey, Lemuel, do you have a Twitter yet? No, I do not no have a Twitter, Twitter since you last asked. You can email us at LatecomersPod at gmail.com. Um, I have another podcast called Cod Podcasts Collected Presents, which you can find anywhere you find podcasts, uh, the aforementioned Google and iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, I'm one of several awesome hosts. Um, I'm not always on there, but when I am, uh, talking about podcasts. When I'm not, they're talking about podcasts. Uh, You guys are great, and we will talk to you next week. And remember, later is greater. He didn't make a noise this time. I think I'm on the right track. Bye!